episode overall coach Butts is an amazing guy I've uh, been coaching Harvard for 30 years and dispelled his wisdom on us and what he thinks about the new generation and how it compares to the old generation as well as how rowing as a sport overall team and individual uh, changes your mentality and dealing with the most disciplined of the disciplined uh, in the Ivy Leagues and athletes in general He's built an outlook on life that is one to to appreciate. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. And the double clap signifies the start of an episode. Jack, your typing is picking up on the mic. <laughs> well, nonetheless, here, before we say anything else, hey, everybody. This is Connor Hawley of the Golden Hours Podcast. And listen, if you by chance get any sort of value from this episode, whether you laugh, you cry, you're entertained, or you learn something, dude, just share it with a friend. And if you don't have friends, you shouldn't be listening to podcasts. That's my theory. <laughs> That's my Providence College brain thinking theory. And also, another announcement, dude, those GDP boys, GDP stands for Golden Year Productions. Okay. Okay. Are throwing an event on January 17th called GDP Hustle because we've had an eclectic mix of entrepreneurs and brands and startups on the show. And at a certain point, I realized, like, dude, if you're building something for yourself 18 hours a day, it's really hard to meet new people. So here at GDP Studios on the 17th, we're throwing a great event for young hustlers in the city. And you don't just have to be young, right, Jack? That's, a, that's true. You can be older than I am you can be older than Jack I, I say we'll have a pretty good mix of like 20 and 30 year olds there and people are coming they're setting up tables marketing their product we're gonna have a live pitch competition that's streamed on the biggest YouTube channel in Boston and a bog alliance nice we're going to have sponsored refreshments alcohol booze love it I don't think we can say that legally <laughs> but yep sponsored refreshments and we might even have a little free food there. And everyone's going to have a good time. Chris, are you coming? I'll be there. Okay, great. Listen, and also before I introduce my guest today, can you can the two elephants in the room say what's up? Hey, guys. It's me, Jack Bigelow. You know, the the graphic god from Golden Deer Productions. And he's back. And it's C-Mac checking in to produce another episode. And a quick birthday shout-out to our owner, Connor Holloway. Thank you very much, Chris. That's kind of you. We have a we have our sentimental like uh, goals 
driven episode coming on the 27th so we'll probably delve more into that then additionally i just want to say congratulations to jack who just graduated college and so did connor congrats well done boys where did you graduate from i went to rutgers college incidentally uh you'll feel it on the mic i graduated in the early 80s a new jersey guy yeah well i was from virginia originally so before we begin the episode I'd like to just say, hey, thanks for coming. This is Coach Charlie Butt of Harvard Rowing. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be here, and happy birthday. Thank you very much. Can you give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm the head coach for men's rowing at Harvard University. I've been here more than 30 years. I coach the men's lightweight varsity for more than 20, 25 years, and uh, I've had this job currently for six or seven years. And uh, so... It's my job to prepare Harvard students for intercollegiate competition and all that that involves. And uh, that's often very hard work. It's often in the uh, out of doors. It's in a team context. It's in an individual context. Um, we're doing everything we can to teach these young people how to row their boat the fastest. And uh, um, while respecting and understanding that the academic and the experience on campus is the primary reason they're at Harvard. That was a big thing for me when we had talked on the phone. You were like, well, their academics come first no matter what. Is that like tough for you as a coach? Because your job is to make sure you produce successful teams, but these, your kids have to be brain masters. Well, <laughs> they're, they're not. Okay, so – at a place like Harvard, you no question run into brilliant people, guys who are champions in chess. We had a guy on the team once who was a two-time under-21 chess champion in the country. What was he like? Oh, he was unbelievable. <laughs> and uh, he was a third boat guy. He was in lower in the, in the lower part of the program. Um, but for the most part, the students are bright, and they work very hard. When you talked to the chess guy, was it just like, dude, I, I can tell you're reading my mind? <laughs> <laughs> No, he was something. He, uh, we could devote several episodes to this guy. Okay, uh, <laughs> we'll do a mini-series. Yeah, his name was Andy Serrata, and he's an oil trader now. Oh, and, whoa. Uh, oh, yeah. He's rolling in the big bucks. Oh, yeah, he's quite a guy. <laughs> he's quite a guy. So, um, But it's our job to prepare the students to, to race their Ivy League and league opponents. The league includes Northeastern PU. It includes the Naval Academy. West Coast schools, Berkeley, Washington. And uh, for instance, last year our captain was a prize winning astrophysicist. This is a guy who's 6'4, 210, and. Uh, Jacked. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And he's out in Berkeley right now trying out for the Olympic team. But he's a guy who was recognized as one of the better astrophysicists at Harvard University. He has money to go study at Oxford or Cambridge in the future if he wants to. But he was also a varsity rower. Mm -hmm. And then he loved music, and he had himself a – he was part of a heavy metal band. <laughs> and, he, and I said, so what's that like? He says, we're not very good, but, man, we're loud. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow. So it was – it's really uh, – the academics are the first priority. You can't have guys coming to Harvard – and feeling like they've only rowed. So you've got it right when for two or three hours a day, they're rowing, they're racing their boats against each other, and they're having a lot of fun. Like we do things, uh, 
we get a sense of what the guys think would be fun, and then we go put it in a competitive context. And uh, a lot of these guys on the team were the kids who would, you know, be standing at the bus stop thinking like, hey, I'll race you over there to the tree. And then people would line up, and these they'd be one of the kids involved in that. And so men and women, they're just they they like to row together for the most part, um, and they compete and have a lot of fun. So I think it's your sport is especially interesting because it's growing up. It was never an option for me to like go row, even though I'm from around here so like the charles river was right there it was never really like passed down on me so how is it tough for you in the recruitment phase to be like all right i know there's good talent from this area or are you pulling people from all over the country all over the country and all over the world basically we have to find the guys who want to do the academic work they you know they and within our team of 50 oarsmen we have more than 20 different academic disciplines that they're pursuing like majors yeah majors okay. chemistry biochemistry engineering english we have poets we've got guys in design and uh and the arts and we also have you know like i just talked about uh, the astrophysics and the computer that, that science. kid's really the winner huh that kid's the alpha well, male you know it's kind of funny is that he was we had nine guys graduate last year and five did theses which is an option at harvard so People would, you know, that's pretty remarkable when you consider that they're doing a Division One sport. Rowing is a work, all sports are work sports. I'm not going to try to separate and make rowing into something that other sports aren't. Because, for instance, whenever I go to the gym or to the stadium, like in the 5, you know, 5.30 in the morning in the summer, I'm over, I would go to the stadium occasionally just to exercise before a workout. And there's there's the strength coaches from football getting set up for the guys who do their running before they do their summer work. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you see all the sports from sailing to, you can't really separate and say this sport definitely does more. But we're certainly up there with the top in terms of. You mean, you mean in terms of physical demand? Yeah, physical demand. And, and, and time commitment? And time commitment. And it. Across the board, if you talk to coaches, if a student says, look, I don't have time, I've got to quit. Uh, in most cases, they manage their time better when they're rowing. They're healthier when they're rowing or on a team. And and they feel better because they, you know, I, I think that we're designed to work hard. Like in, I agree. Like, like my grandpa in his lifetime, uh, he was born before the turn of the last century, and was, I, he, was he Charlie? Senior? No, 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 no. He was uh, from Appalachia. He left the mountains with a third grade education. Wow! Said this is behind me, and he went to the Piedmont of North Carolina. And uh, can you elaborate on the Piedmont is? Well, the Piedmont is out of the mountains, basically. It, it's the flatter region. Okay. And it's uh, the 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 soil is richer, and they would grow at the time. There were a lot of tobacco farms and whatnot. Uh, he didn't opt for farming, though some of his brothers did. What area of Appalachia? Uh, Boone, North Carolina. Okay. Up there. Um, so, it's so, so my mom was. Uh, it, 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 what's interesting about my background is that I have 
a working class and an MIT, like my dad went to MIT. His family got together. Uh, they had fallen on hard times during the Depression. And between six or seven in, uh, relatives, they sent him, the only kid uh, uh, from, the from the extended family, uh, to MIT. They lost their farms and orchards in Pennsylvania in Gettysburg wow. during the Depression. And, uh, and he met my, he was uh, an engineer in the Army Air Corps in the Second World War. And I didn't realize how dangerous that was until I read about it. Um, what our, you know, what learning to fly meant in the 1930s and 40s. Um, but they tested airplanes and they, uh, they uh, made things work for the war effort. And he ended up in Washington, D.C. after the war. And uh, he had learned to row at MIT. He'd started in the fall of 1937. Wow. And, uh, and now you're here. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy because – and then he met my mom who was a teacher. And she went to Appalachian State Teachers College. My grandpa gave her uh, – he was running two diners at the time in the mid during the war and uh, gave her some money to go to school. And she's uh, – she had – she had – she was one of six. The mother died of, of, of uh, I think, typhoid. It was some dread disease that we've all forgotten about mm -hmm. that used to, you know, parents used to. Like measles. Yeah, measles mm -hmm. or, or uh, typhoid or j just stuff that, that you would never even think about now. Isn't that wild to think about? Like there were diseases like less than 200 years ago that it's like, okay, you could just catch this disease and die. There's no treatment for this. See ya. Yeah. That is like the craziest thing of all time. Yeah, and it's like uh, my mother's generation were just – she died in the last three years, but she was amazed by this anti-vaccine effort because she was a child when uh, – my, my grandpa had a concession at, on the beach in North Carolina, Myrtle Beach, and there was some sort of a health scare, and nobody came to the beach. Nobody brought their kids. So my grandpa had a loan. And uh, he had this concession that nobody was – so he had to move the concession. And one uh, of the – I'm going to sound like a dumb here, but can you just elaborate on what the concession is? Oh, uh, selling candy bars, pop, okay, and stuff cool. at a beach. And, you know, this is a guy with third-grade education, but he educated both of his daughters. And his sons, all who did the – all of whom who did the war, um, did the um, GI Bill. So – and, you know, in my life, I've seen examples of an individual deciding he's getting out. He's going to educate his daughters. They let uh, my mom left North Carolina and met an MIT guy in Washington D.C. Um, and then an amazing government program. Like I had uncles who did the uh, work programs in the 1930s, and because the economy, you know, was just devastated during the Depression. So both sides of the family had suffered an awful lot in the Depression. Then you had this war that they had to go fight. And m in the middle of it, my grandpa decided he was going to educate his daughters. So my mom was a teacher and a teacher at the school where my dad started a high school rowing program. So we're getting to how – so – Where is this, Virginia? This is in Virginia. Whereabouts? And it was the Washington Lee High School. Wow. <laughs> uh, and just outside of Washington, D.C. So 
He did that from 1949 until 1990, and then he passed away the next year. And he was the, the first person to bring high school rowing. In, well, there was high school rowing in the area, but he decided to cope. Uh, and it was the making of him, basically. All right, this is going to sound dumb again, but what body of water were you rowing? Oh, the on? Potomac River. Potomac River, right okay. Right through the middle of D.C. Okay, cool. So he was an aerospace engineer. He was an aeronautical engineer at the time. He'd, he'd uh, done his senior thesis at MIT on the swing wing design with a guy who went on to run Grumman. What is a swing wing design? Uh, that's when the wing moves back and forth. Okay. So they started research on that in the late wow. 1930s. So you were just meant to be this awesome crew coach. So, man, huh? you know, it's it's like, uh, and so I was one of five, and I was the only boy. Oh, so four sisters? Four sisters. <laughs> what was that like? Well, my mom was, you know, a very smart country girl. So she would send me out. If they who, were who would you beat up? If they were picking on me. And my sisters would get my cousins to beat me up if I wasn't treating them very well. And, uh, but my mom just kind of sent me out. So I would spend my day wandering around. And I have a pair, <laughs> of, I have a pair of small brown boots from the, I mean, tiny little things that she would, like, she took them away from me, actually, because Bo I got. Like Timberland boots? Small, but yeah, I could show them to you. But I, I got away from her. And she took my shoes away because I couldn't get over the pavement. It'd start to cry and then come back. But she could control where I was wandering if she took my, my, my shoes away. <laughs> Sounds but, traumatizing, but man. <laughs> <laughs> they found one of my shoes in a creek and got, she lost me. But the uh, – no, no. <laughs> Your childhood me. sounds petrifying, no, no, I man. I know. Where are you in like the deep thicket in Virginia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. just outside of DC. <laughs> oh. It was the country at the time, but the 495, the access road, was being built, and they found me watching the construction equipment. And I mean, I'm like four years old. And like, whose kid is this? <laughs> Who knows at the time? And you said one day I'm going to be an awesome rowing coach. <laughs> so that's how I got along with my dad and my family, and uh, so. The weekends were about like running regattas. Were you close with your dad? Yeah. So when you were in your household surrounded by women, could you like confide in your dad about like, hey, I'm like becoming a man, blah, blah, blah? No, no. It was pretty much like, hey, we got to go do this. We have a job to do. We got to take these boats to Philadelphia. We got to take these boats to New York. Uh, so we would get out there and tie them down. And by the time you I You guys bonded through work. Yeah. And by the time I was 16, I was driving a lumber truck with him. See, I see from my North Carolina side of the family, I learned that like a, a working man's can do, like dig in, get stuff grind. Done. Yeah. And so when they said we need someone to drive the lumber truck loaded with boats to Philadelphia or New York, I was thrilled. So I would be driving this truck, lumber truck, with this enormous steering wheel. Double, double clutching, and my dad would be to my right. You, you had a piece of I'm wheat like, in your mouth. Uh, uh, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but I'm so, you know. And then there's my dad, who's this MIT guy, studying rowing, taking notes. He would know what a guy from the Czech Republic or the Czechoslovakia had said. A guy who had defected, like you don't realize it at the time, but there was a lot of sports research in the East. And the, and the communist, in quotes, part of the world. 
And as people would defect, they would come to the West and start revealing what they knew. And it was about how boats moved. It was about based on research from East Germany and Russia. And so it would, as an MIT guy, he made it his business to keep files and to study. And it was high school rowing. He never left engineering behind. Um, but this is just what he, this is just the way he operated. And I still try to maintain, even though I'm 60 years old, you've got to keep looking at what's going on what the research is <clears throat> and then if you don't like what you see you know go back to it it's a it's a it's a combination of old school and like information analytics right now like the rowing world but uh, we're getting away from a lot know, of statistics right yeah it's yeah you there's a lot of data and if you if you invest yourself too much in the data then you'll forget what they were saying a hundred years ago about how to teach a good rowing stroke how do you now you being in this position of like okay i'm kind of a storied rowing coach i've been pretty successful when you look back at your origins in the country and like you being close with your dad does it seem like it's kind of destiny for you to be in this position because you're like it seems like you're a perfect culmination of i'm sure both your mother and your father yeah I, first of all there's no question i've been fortunate i've had uh the most luck in the most important area and that's been family like my mother and father uh, they got on great. Uh, we took care, like my father was uh, a remarkable guy along with my mother. You can't really separate the two because we had an uncle uh, who lived in the basement and it was my mother's brother, a wonderful man, but clearly um, he ended up in the middle of the killing fields in Asia at age 18 uh, in, uh, in the Second World War. It was never the same. PTSD? Oh, uh, yeah, no question. And, and so. What was he just like? Well, he. Disfocused? What was that no, like? No, no, he would work quite hard. He was a fantastic worker. And I, I take a lot of. Like, he would say, he'd wake me up and say, uh, I froze, I've got water jars. And we're going to go get blackberries today. And so we would go out by the highway where. Eight years before, I had been watching construction. I was going to say, do you have your boots on this time or what? Oh, yeah. He would say, you need to have boots. You need to have jeans because we're going into the briars. And I knew that we were going to pick like 20 gallons of blackberries, <laughs> okay, in the Virginia sun in like June. And this is a guy who was just a complete horse for work. And then after a few months, he'd say, I, I got to go get a pack of cigarettes. And then we wouldn't see him for three or four weeks. <laughs> wow. And I'd say, well, where have you been? He said, I'm he picking said, blackberries, man. He says, no, I was deer hunting. <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, those deer wouldn't have a chance. I said, and then you get older and you say, wait a minute, this is in the summer. You can't hunt deer in the summer. <laughs> but he, uh, he's just a guy, uh, you, you know, when you're surrounded by people, you take good lessons, you take bad lessons. You know, you take, you, you just... I've been so lucky to be surrounded by so many different characters, young people, older people, colleagues for my entire life that, that uh, I like to draw on that and think. And then, you know, you realize more about the older people as you get to be their age, like what, a, what may have been going on, how tough things may have been. And, and the perspective it gives to me is 
my oarsmen, guys 18 to 23 years old, okay? They've worked really hard. Some have met with, you know, some, some, some turmoil in their lives. But life doesn't spare anybody, okay? And there's going to be a time in the future when they have to buckle down, when they've really got to believe in themselves to get themselves up out of bed and, and go after whatever it is. And, and um, I think rowing, I think sports in general, and, and I think that's what makes American education unique in general, is like we were talking about, you know, the Providence, the, you know, the hockey and the basketball team. You know, that stuff is fun. It's fun to cheer for these guys. But, but just in general, you know, the way we link education, information from books, now information from collaborative efforts and with computers and simulations, but we link that with, with, with the ability to compete as a team. You know, to I take instruction. I get what instruction. you're saying. My question, so, I mean, you, you're at Harvard. You're at the highest academic environment. Prob sure. Definitely in the U.S., you know what I'm saying? Or if not, MIT, and I'm sure you're on MIT a bunch too. You've seen the highest possible outcome of academia. Me and Chris, for instance, and Jack, we never went to like somewhere where they demand excellence. So I don't know if I ever actually drew that from academia as much as I did as like entrepreneurship. And so have you, do you no notice that when you're surrounded by all these excellent individuals, do you realize, okay, well, this place isn't normal? Okay. So it comes back to Harvard and Harvard admissions. All right. Bill Fitzsimmons and admissions. Uh, Marlon Lewis and people I've known for more than 30 years have done a remarkable job of creating a community at Harvard. It, it, no question it includes guys who are under 21 chess champions, guys who can, who can solve problems, you know, stretching out on a map. Andy Sirota could think of solutions to answers that teams of guys couldn't come up with over a period of two days. And if they gave him five minutes while he was stretching, he would come up with a solution. A how do you challenge a guy like that? Well, they would just do it for fun. Well, I'm just saying, how do you do it? Like, if someone, he's like, well, I got life figured out, man. No one can, like. So, this, so that, that, that's a kind of cool thing. So you have a bus ride for six hours, and this guy is playing 15 games of chess while he walks up and down and talks to people about every possible topic you can imagine. So this is a genius. This guy is brilliant. But Harvard admissions and Harvard in general is trying to create a community. And that's why, that's why the athletics uh, comes second to the academic and to the community experience. But they're creating, uh, it's not just geniuses. It's, it's also people who are remarkable on an inter, you know, on a personal level. It's people who are politically active. It's people who, you know, are desperate to be entrepreneurs. Like, like there is a center for entrepreneurial activity um, at the business school. And it's the iLab, where they provide everything you need if you have an idea to get going. And we had a guy two years ago, uh, Binge Cohen, who decided he didn't have time for rowing anymore. And he almost didn't have time for school. Well, his mom wouldn't let him leave. 
but this is a guy who's going to go take on some of the major corporations that we're all aware of because he's applying um, artificial intelligence to issues that that uh, other that that, that are not to now being applied. So, um, and and uh, you know, you ride by this enormous building in San Francisco, and 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 I just laugh because I think. Do they have any idea that on this bus is a kid who's planning to take them down? I know or, what you're saying. And, and, so, and so, you know, you'd be amazed at what starts, just like you three guys, what you might do someday. Because, you know, you're going to have this party, and you have no idea who might walk in and just want to have some fun, show what they're doing, and then things take off from there. Um, uh, it's... Do you, do you take the environment for granted ever because you've you been around it for so long? To. You try not to. And, and, and I'm in a unique environment for someone who's got like five kids, uh, a dear wife of, of, of nearly 30 years, and we're getting a family together. But when I Happy go to holidays. That, hey, thank you. <laughs> and uh, when I go to the boathouse, I don't have people there bitching about how they're how uh, <clears throat> how much they hate life, okay? Or like, oh, this sucks, or this weather's bad, or or, or this the Charles River is nearly frozen. Yeah, I do <laughs> not want to get out there today. <laughs> well, you see, we had an event in late November, early December, just before classes started, and it's snowing, and it's bad. But we're gonna do we're gonna do a thirty minute piece on the ergometer. We're going to run four miles, and then we're going to do go around the Harvard Stadium. What are you doing in the Harvard Stadium? We're running up and down. Up, thir- up the steps. 37 sections, and it's snowing. And I know these young guys think, hey, we don't have to do the stadium today. But the coaches, Pat LaPage, Jesse Falia, Ian Accomando, and I, and, and Billy Boyce, we all got out there and shovel off two or three sections. Did you run the sprints with them? I used to. What happened? Yeah, I'm getting old. <laughs> oh, okay. And it happens, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you still work a, out every day, though, right? Well, I try, yeah, but it's a What do you do for a workout? Well, what I do is um. there's a, a remarkable strength environment, strength coach at Harvard, uh, and there have been for years. It started with uh, this guy who's now at Tennessee who coached, uh, let's see, uh, his name's Fitz. And uh, now it's a, it's a younger guy named Frazier. And uh, and he between him and his staff and Tim Mullen, they they are constantly generating new types of exercise. So some days I go in just to walk, you know, like I got a busy life and I got to exercise. So I walk and I read the paper and then I go do a few weights. And I've always been interested in some dumbbells or. Oh, well, you see, you see. The improvements in training have been unbelievable in the last 10 to 20 yeah. years. And you see, I mean, you guys don't remember Lawrence Taylor, but there was like one guy on the field who was moving so fast. But now, 20, 30 years later, there are a bunch of guys who can do things like him. And it's the training. It's the teach balance. It's nutrition as well. Yeah, it's nutrition. It's just, it, it's, a, it's a number of things. So, I, I you know, I've, I've always thought like, I've been very fortunate to pay attention to what's going on around me and how people are getting better and what they're doing. 
and the stuff I see in training, like like I I've hurt myself or like had a sore back or or one time I went to one of my son's uh, soccer games and like I turned to the key of the ignition, jumped off and went out and decided to play soccer. It was a father son or parent kid game, and I'd seen this maneuver like Sunday morning in pro soccer that I tried. <laughs> And tore my hamstring to the point that you could see all kinds of bleeding down the back you know, oh. inside of my leg. <laughs> and so people said, oh, you're going to need an operation. Why are you smiling? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sounds miserable. No, no, it was bad. But, but I said, okay. People said, you're going to need an operation. And I went in there, and I went to the training room, and I talked to, uh, I think it was James Frazier. And I said, look at this thing. He says, yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> and he says, give it a few days. I said, great, because all these people were saying, oh, you're going to be in all kinds of trouble. And it was a bad bruise, basically. But they gave me some exercises, stuff you've never heard of. You lie on your side, you move your left leg in a certain direction, a number of reps. And I was moving again. But, you, you know, I, I guess my point is that, is that if you're out there and you're paying attention, you're going to see a lot of interesting stuff. And I owe that to, like, my dad. Was, who was an MIT guy who was always curious, like how do things work? Like I'm 60 years old and I'm walking around the bookstore while I'm waiting for my uh, youngest son recently. And it's like how things work. And that book is looking at me and I'm looking at that book. And I've been looking in these things for 30 years. But I had to pick up this new book and just take a look. Well, how do the hydraulics in that airplane and work or whatever? So I owe that to the people around me it's the people who, when things start to change, you change with it. Otherwise, otherwise you become a dinosaur. Fast. Don't be stagnant. Yes, exactly. And that's what the young people teach you. Like, like I know people who complain about the younger, younger people. The millennials. Yeah, and, and I just laugh at them because I've never had a harder working group of guys than these young people. I mean, they are everything – that the people were 20 and 30 years ago. They're just different. Like, Well, they just got testosterone pumping through their veins. Like, let's there was a this lot, boat. I just want to tell you, there was a lot of that a few years ago, too. That hasn't changed. Okay. okay. Um, but, but, like, you got to tell them to take their earpieces off. The AirPods. AirPods or whatever they are, you know, and, and – uh, You don't have AirPods? Uh, no. Oh, you'd love them. Yeah, I love them. Someone says hello. I gotta say hello back. I can't just walk by like I didn't hear them. But you could do both. That's true. <laughs> so my wife's solution is to, and uh, she's a physician at Mass General, and like, uh, she's a doctor. I'm she's a doc. She rode. Like I went to Rutgers. She went to Princeton. I did well at over rowing overseas. She got a gold medal. I used to go run. She was a sub three hour marathoner. So. If they're so you're living in the shadows, man. Exactly, <laughs> very happily. So, you know, it's it's. Uh, what's her, what's her practice at MGH? Yeah, so she does anesthesia for um, cardiothoracic stuff. So, are, are your kids just like super brain ch children? No, like? no, no. They they work hard. They're like they're like. Um, so my wife would be the first one to, to say like I work hard, and my children. My children have, have picked up on working hard, and it typically starts with sports, and then it spreads to academics and to other things. Um, I, I just want to segue real quick. Um, 
before we move on from the, the training portion. So what type of training do you advise all of your athletes to do? Is it a mix of like being on the water as much as possible and like like heavy squat, heavy bench type thing? Because when people picture these big rowers, they picture like six five, deezed up, two twenty, alpha male spiked hair with Ray Bans on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> so the ro- rowing has to be fun. Like it's gotta be fun. If you're giving your all you need to know how to work together and how to make it. It's 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 all about pursuing something that's very difficult, but done well. You're working hard and you're enjoying it. It's like working with other people you get on very well with. You'll put in 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day if it's going well. But if someone's out of sync or out of rhythm or causing friction, that makes it miserable. So... So the, the, the training is we keep them on the water as much as we can because that's the most fun. We do use machines, but we only use the machines to measure progress and to teach the stroke. Um, but we want them out there competing with each other. Um, like recently we had, uh, we had a World Cup. And uh, in the World Cup, you have the guys from Australia and New Zealand. You have the guys from North America. You have the guys from Europe. And they competed. They wore their different colors, you know. And then we had class struggle recently. And that's the seniors, juniors, sophomores, and freshmen. And so we played up on the class struggle theme. I had an old sweater from back in the day that said CCCP on it. I had a black hat with a red star. And I handed out a uh, <laughs> Pat LePage found this thing with the hammer and the sickle. I think he bought it from the Ukraine online. But we handed out a trophy to the winning class. Who won? Uh, well, the sophomores, uh, it was, there was, and what you got to love is controversy because someone didn't hear what the actual terms of the race were. And they were well in front and they stopped. And then their opponents went by. No, the sophomores won? So the sophomores were the fastest, but I think the juniors uh, actually prevailed because they went the full 6,400 meters. Whoa. So anyway, so – and then there's a controversy. And, you know, what's life without a little controversy, right? So – and – and uh, but it's all part of, like, you got to go out there on the day. It's like if you look at um, the, the Harvard football coach um, – you know, uh, Tim, he says, you know, whatever happens, any coach will say, whatever the context is, whatever happens, you got to keep your head and you got to go ahead. And so we've created an environment where they race against each other, they give their all, and then if you don't get something right, then it's gone wrong. So you'd say it's about 80% on the water, 20% in the gym. Yeah, uh, when the water is not frozen. Which it is right now, right? Yeah, it is frozen. Is, is it totally frozen right now? Uh, it's getting there. Can I ask you a question? Is is the Charles River cool to just swim in? Like, would you recommend drinking that water? <laughs> Not after it's rained. Why I is would, that? I would never drink the water, no. <laughs> I would never drink the water. But I can tell you that compared to, 30, compared to 33 years ago, we have far more fish. Like, I remember as a child at the Potomac Boat Club, 
getting thrown in the water by my dad's relatives, high school relatives, because there's this eight-year-old. It sounds gonna, like your childhood gonna, sounds terrible. <laughs> no, no, no. It was wonderful. It was that wonderful. Like they, they strapped weights to my ankles. They threw me in the river. <laughs> Rise up, son. No, the uh, – but it was like – it was a, it was, it was terrific because you know there were times when you get thrown in the water when your dad wasn't looking or the coach, but you'd done something to deserve it, mm-hmm. and so it was a good lesson. It's like you had brothers in that in that case, um, but but the the uh, you see look back to that story about the stadium just earlier in the month, you know, we created a, like when it's time. You gotta go regardless of if the wind is blowing, if it's cold, if it's hot. You gotta cope, and and it's it's about succeeding despite how good or bad the conditions might be. And there are times in rowing; it's an outdoor sport, right? There are times when it's not fair. It's not possible for you to win a race that you maybe you're deserving, but it's possible that you cannot win because the wind is blowing in a certain direction. So you have to be you have to be able to cope with that. And the only way I know to cope with the possibility, it's an occupational hazard. It's like like the weather in rowing is like bad officiating in other sports. Okay? It's something you can't do anything about. That it could be incredibly unfair. So the only way to cope with it is to make sure that on the day to day that you're doing the best job you can and giving absolutely everything you've got. So a quick just refresher. Um, you were touching on how the, some story about the Potomac River and it's tie into the Charles River. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So the tie-in is how much cleaner in my lifetime. Rivers used to be slime pits, okay? <laughs> I mean, you would get thrown in and come out with a rash. Okay. Well, no, and my dad grew up in Cambridge. Yeah. So he was, so when I was younger, if I did something stupid, he'd be like, "What are you drinking the Charles River water?" <laughs> like he would say stuff like that. No, he's right because there was a, the Arsenal stretch. The ar- there was an yeah. Arsenal upstream. I know my grandfather worked at it. Yeah. And that was actually a site of some of the early nuclear research in the Manhattan. Well, it's project. still there. It's all condos now. Yeah, it's condos and. Um, it used to be a dumpy mall. <laughs> you remember that thing? Yeah, yeah, P- pretty wild. Yeah, but so is the river now like people say like there's like dead bodies at the bottom of that thing. There's a lot of pollution, trash. Has it cleaned up a little bit? It's cleaned up a lot. It's been a success because you see birds, uh, night herons fishing. So we got fish, we've got birds, we have swans, we have too many geese. You have less motorized vehicles. I mean, oh, okay. So so. So you can also read the health of the economy from where I'm sitting in the boat, in the river. I can, I can count 18 cranes, maybe more than 20 cranes, as I go from the Harvard Boat Club, uh, Newell Boathouse, down to the Museum of Science. I can, I can count 18, maybe 22 cranes. And you get a lot of yacht activity in there now, right? Not, like so, mu- not, not so much. I think that, you know, they have riverboat tours on the Charles now, too. Yeah, they do. And they're often empty. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so it has to be subsidized by someone. It can't be a standalone. But, but so, you know, so my point is, is that when the economy is really good and there are a lot of cheap boat loans. You, you can have, see it in the skyline. 
Now I'm talking about boatloads. Okay. Those are cranes. That's the other economic indicator. But when when you can when everybody can borrow money for a boat, then you see them out there more often going by. And when the and when the economy tanks, you don't see as many. Yeah. Because that's the first thing to go. The luxury. Yeah, it's the loan. So so, you know, it's like, ask any boat owner what's the happiest. And the uh, what are the what are the two happiest days of his life as a boat owner? The day he buys and the day he sells. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think uh, my dad had a boat. I don't think he he sold it. I don't think he made any money off it. Oh, there's no money making money off yeah. the boat. No, there's no. It's no. worse than a car. <laughs> Cars are pretty bad as is too. Yeah. What do, does a like a G5 plane appreciate? I wouldn't know, but mechanical vehicles like that i feel like they there's no Who money knows? to be made yeah. hey uh you two have any questions right now um kind of got into it a little bit but like over the years the changing mentality of the different generations have you noticed yeah that's a good point much of a shift because like you said a lot of people are always complaining about our generation not wanting to work but oh i laugh yeah i laugh at that because it's a joke yeah these kids are so hard working they're great kids. Mm -hmm. They just have different tools. They have computers now that they never used to mm -hmm. have. They have access to each other that they never used to have. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's different because the com because of the technology. I mean, what changes things the most? It's mm -hmm. like, it's like I like. I don't know why this is the case, but my grandpa, the uh, the man who left Appalachia, used to wake me up early in the morning because he wanted someone to have breakfast with. And he would talk to me and tell me about things like how nice it was that he could put a percolator on a stove and make a cup of coffee. Because when he was a young guy, he had to like keep a fire going for his wife, keep the water hot, yeah. draw the water out. The conveniences that we have. I was going to say our life is much more convenient now. Our lives are incredibly convenient. But, but the young people now have as much fun they do – they just want to be left alone to work hard, have their own parties, their own social lives, and and, um, and hook up with chicks and stuff. <laughs> well, that was a major emphasis even 30 and 40 years ago. Oh, uh, you were still hooking up with chicks? No, no. Pre-wife no. days? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I'm just saying that, that that as an emphasis has not changed. It's just It just gets more attention now because it's – that process is different. It's more uh, in the open because of social media. How do Harvard kids party? So my sister went to HBS, and yeah. she would do all these like weird bars and stuff. I don't. Are there uh, off-campus houses at Harvard? HBS is is a graduate program. Yeah, I'm so the undergraduates they live in an enclosed community. There's basically. no off-campus houses. Very correct? few, very few, and so they have they have parties in their rooms. They have parties. Um, and they have some, from what I can tell, they have some great parties. We only occasionally have to discipline people when something gets broken. If we hear about it, if something gets broken or if we understand someone had uh, too much to drink, then they're going to go, um, we're, we're going to make sure they understand that's pretty serious. How do you, how do you alleviate that as a coach? Because obviously it's really it's a terrible deal when student athletes drink and party, but it's pretty much inevitable. Everybody on campus, people want to socialize. They want to have fun. And so, you know, you got to expect that. So, so um, 
So we what we ask what we ask is that you be easy to row with. You just mute it. Press the sound off here. There you go. I'll so, what we expect is that you be easy to row with and hard to row against. So, if if you went out and you stayed up too late or drank too much or partied too much, that makes you very hard to row with, not easy. Or too many Charlie's Kitchen burgers. That's true. That will slow you down. They will. Uh, yes, sir. They're <laughs> great, though. They're good. They're as good now as they were in the 1980s. I'm sure. Um, what do, What else do you like in Harvard Square? It's changed so much, huh? It, yeah, you know, it, the major thing that I don't like about Harvard Square now compared to 35 years ago. Parking? Well, there's no parking, but I've never really been someone, you know, to use that. Is they use bookstores. And, you know, the, the places where characters really local characters would get together there used to be some restaurants i'd have to think of like there was the worst house the 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 worst house have you are you familiar with the boathouse do you remember that way back the boathouse bar yeah um yeah i it's uh my uncle uncle mike yeah, used yeah, to that manage was, that that was quite a place for a while and then the shays bar was next to that because mm-hmm. i would see that walking to practice or coming back and, uh, Do you remember Guido's? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was on <laughs> that was like Mount, Mount Auburn Street. Yeah, it's right there. It's probably kind of close to where it you live now. It was a dive, and people would go there to get food when they were when they were smacked, hungry. right? Yeah. That's that's where my dad hung out. Guido's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's in Bell. Is that in Belmont? No, it's Cambridge, but it's on off Belmont Street. It's like right there off Mount Auburn and Belmont. Yeah, it's, it's worse. You remember Sofra? Like you know Sofra? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like right there. Yeah, so Guido's is the kind of place where a guy might ride his bike up and leave his leather gloves and bike <laughs> and his minuscule helmet like on the seat, just daring someone to like mess with it. Yeah. So <laughs> where I you re- park your bike a couple blocks up? Right. <laughs> so I. Rem- <laughs> yeah, I remember those places. So. <laughs> That's hilarious. But I, I, I do think that uh, I have a lot of faith in the young. I deal with the young people, and they want to work hard. They want to socialize. You know, they, they want to have events where they look forward to them, and, uh, and they want to study hard. And I find that guys who study, guys who really get into what they're doing, are make better athletes, make better oarsmen. And so we specifically look for guys like we found this. We have this guy coming to Harvard next year who is an enormous sort of physical specimen. How big? 6'6", 210, he's 17 years old. <laughs> okay? And so, and so what makes him exceptional was I was visiting him. Great family. We had, the, we had a great, a very, very nice uh, lunch with his grandparents. We, uh, 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 his mom wasn't there, but his dad was having a terrific time. He's got five siblings or something like this. And then uh, he, says, he says, yeah, he does a little art, but he's understated. I said, oh, you do? What, like what? And he says, illustrations. And then he won a prize, and, and his work was on display. So I said, you have to bring this when you visit him. You have to bring examples of your work with you. Because people are going to think, like, 
you're just this huge physical Meathead, presence. Yeah. yeah. But you're actually a really inquisitive but character. But this guy, but so so some of the other students saw his his uh, saw his artwork, and they were as stunned by it as I was. Like, wow, this is exceptional. So this guy is not somebody who would get into MIT, for instance, which is you know where you think of MIT, Caltech, and these other places as having very rigid. You got to have 800s in everything. You got to have a perfect 36 ACT research. Mm -hmm. But but you see, that's where I think Harvard does an outstanding job of putting a community together because they've got this guy. They got a good mix. They've got yeah, like the kids on the on the on the like if you looked at the football team, there are guys going off to medical school. There are guys doing research. It's it's and I'm taking that as a sample of people you know, might have a certain impression of college football. It doesn't, it doesn't apply at a place like Harvard. What was Harvard like when Facebook was originated? Because I'm sure you were connected to the two guys yeah, who were Rowan at the time. Yeah, the Winklevoss twins. And they just sent me a book. Uh, uh, Resnich, I got to think of his name. But it's called The uh, uh, Bitcoin Billionaires. Yeah, they killed it on the Bitcoin. Yeah, on the Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> they killed it. Yeah, they really did. And that's a that's a great. I read it recently. It was it's a great read, and uh, uh, it, it's and it's worth picking up because you have such a cast of characters uh, involved in this in this book. Um, but <clears throat> I met these guys. I wasn't coaching that. That was Harry. That uh, that, that that team was coached by Harry Parker. Harry Parker is it was an iconic. Uh, part of the Harvard community for 50 years. And he really set the tone and the expectations for academics first, athletics as part of your day. Okay? But so, so I met these, these, uh, these two brothers when they first came to Harvard. And these were kids who I have a passing interest in, like amateur investing. These kids were talking to me. They are 18-year-olds talking about, like, how do you think the builders are going to do? you know, uh, in, in the market in 2003 and 2004. And these are guys always coming up with ideas. They had, they had, they just, this is what they do. They're, and you'll learn from the book that their father and their mother um, are, you know, the sort of people who made stuff happen. Like, his, like their dad was not academically qualified to go to a decent school because he spent all of his time rebuilding cars as a high school kid. So he goes to it. So he gets into a place, meets his wife uh, in line. The, the families are all standing together. But then these brothers emerge from this union, and these guys, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm sure they're controversial because, uh, you know, for all the reasons that are obvious, you know. But in fact, they're good guys. They work very hard, and they, of, of course, they're just human, like you know the rest of us. But you know, to see, I am not surprised in the least that these guys have been in the forefront of two movements that very few other people saw. I'm not surprised in the least looking back, thinking back on it. What was Facebook like on campus? Do you remember at the time? I had no idea. No? I'm still, I am still like. Do you have a Facebook? No. No, not even? No. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy. Well, you didn't know what a podcast was before we were on the phone, right? Or you well, kind of knew? I've, I've heard of podcasts before. Hey, are you enjoying it? Is and it so, and so, yeah, I'm enjoying it. But like, I, you see, I thought I was listening to a news show or an expert on the on the radio, and it's really my wife playing a podcast. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it, it's, 
for the most part, it's informative uh, people who've thought a lot about things. And I've, I've heard some podcasts that are just like, uh, there's, I think there's a local guy who does something about musicians and the seedier part of their lives. Um, it might be me, man. <laughs> no, I don't know. But this guy, this is a guy who was talking about Jerry D. Lewis's wives dying. Who is this competition? We're going to wipe him out. His, <laughs> anyways, uh, but I... Uh, so you didn't know about Facebook at the time? I didn't know about it at the time. But looking back on it, you realize, like, yeah, that was the beginning. And and uh, it was called Connect You. And then... It was called, like, the... It was called Face Smash at first. And then it was the the Facebook, right? Or, well, or Harvard Connection, I think. Zuckerberg it was like. made Face Mash, I think, and that's where you would like like two, you would like one of the two photos. It's like Tinder, you know, what Tinder is. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's kind of like Tinder. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm like I've been off the market since 1986. So, uh, but but I but I I've heard guys talk about it. Okay, I'm sure some of your athletes have and, Tinder, and I'm and they say Harvard rower. <laughs> On their profile. Hey, I'll tell you. People who've said they're Harvard rowers or Harvard hockey or Harvard whatever, those guys have been around since the 1980s. And it's just been some guy who says, yeah. You know, he decides, I'll see if I can just lie to whomever and well, say I'm, I'm this I'll, or I'm that. Well, can I get a pass after the episode? Just <laughs> start telling chicks I'm on the road too. Hey, hey. Like, yeah, see this picture of me and the coach. Hey, people apply for jobs. And the res- human resources people call them because they gotta they gotta make sure the resume they're looking at is legitimate. Uh, they gotta vet them, yeah. And I say, and it's more often than not, or it's just funny. Someone calls and I say, I've never heard of that person. Wow, oh, really? Yeah, people get caught. Yeah. No way. Oh yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, people get caught. That's funny. Because man. because people track you know track askers, and. Just like recently, we heard from a guy from New York who has a picture that he's trying to date of a relative standing on a on a boat next to in New London in like 1910 or something, and he wants to know if we know. So I just send this photo out to people and say, "Hey, can we establish when this was uh, for this family in New York because they had they had some something digitally remastered." And now they're trying to date it and say, like, who could be in this picture? Oh, my God. <laughs> what, um, real quick, because we've we got to wrap up shortly. Sure, but sure. what, um, what's the difference in coaching the elite Ivy? Because everyone knows, like, okay, you're coaching an Ivy League school, Ivy League growing, huge. What's the difference in that and then with the Olympic team? Okay. Yeah, so I did five Olympics. And <laughs> nice. Was it awesome? Yeah. And, you know, working with people who are capable athletically of being Olympians and putting the work in, the biggest possibility is focus and work, okay? So what is the difference? There are more guys who've been to Harvard, many of whom decided, I'm not that interested to devote three rows a day to the Olympics for two years or three years. I'm just going to go on with my career. But the guys and, and the men and the women who decide they're going to do it um, are a lot like the undergraduates in that they make a commitment. They're willing to make changes. See, rowing is an aggregate sport. And what I mean by that is 
they're 250 strokes in a race. And if you improve by one one hundredth of a second, each stroke over 250 strokes, that's 2.5 seconds. So as an athlete, if you can maintain an improvement of one one hundredth year after year after year, then you can become someone who is a varsity winning athlete, and then beyond that, a varsity, then someone who makes the Olympic team, and then ultimately someone who goes on and makes a medal. There's a, there's a, a young woman in town, Jebby Stone, who was rejected by the national team because she wasn't strong enough. And 10 years later, 12 years later, she was a silver medalist at Rio in the women's single, which is one of the most competitive events. Okay? She's now a doctor. She did medical school. She is now just as strong because she and the only person and her father together, they decided we are going to, we're going to make, you want to go fast, we're going to work at this. And so they worked at it. And incrementally, every year, she's gotten faster and faster and faster. And the most exciting thing about it is there are more people behind. There are other young people. 10, 12 years younger, who now want to do the same thing, who are pursuing this process, even though on paper they're not the best prospects. Okay. Well, well that competing at the Olympics is like the highest level of the profession, correct? It's an amateur sport. It's limited to universities and kids who discover rowing through clubs and stuff. Um, so it's the only way you can really get paid off rowing is coaching? Pretty much. I mean, there's some people in the UK who made a few hundred thousand dollars as the UK's top athletes for a decade, maybe 10 years ago. Um, but it's not a place you make money. It's, it's just a, it's, it's, it's an opportunity to try to ra rise to the top of, of a very vigorous sort of amateur. The only reason you want to do it is you want to do it. I was going to say, you, you, you just got to love it. Yeah. And you want to see if you can be the best at some point in time in your life. And, and that's the only reason. There's no money. And I joke and say it's only about pride, not money. What if you win the foot of the Charles or the head of the Charles? There's some sort of prize money, right? Um, no, not, no, not either. Not for the head of the Charles. There are some prize races down in, in, um, Philadelphia, but if you a prize of ten thousand dollars, yeah. So you know, for all the hours you've put in and stuff, what is um? It's not worth that. So is the team funded by boosters? So it's a combination of Harvard. Uh, the Department of Athletics is funded by the college. In that fat Harvard endowment. Whoa. That is something else. <laughs> okay. Is it three hundred billion? Uh, no, I think it's $30 billion. Yeah. Does anyone have a phone just to check that? It's 30, I think it's, check your laptop. It's $34 billion. Oh, Okay, my gosh. it's $34 billion and Can you tell them to buy us a space heater in here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but, you know, there are a lot of disciplines now, academic disciplines, that require new labs, new buildings. And so there's a guy at the boathouse who keeps uh, – who's donated – more than $400 million 
to developing labs and in and research space. What's his name? His name's Hans Wies. And he, and Sounds smart. Well, he's a Swiss guy, and you know when you're a little kid and someone removes your cast and it doesn't hurt you, it, right? Yeah, he developed he's, that. He developed that machine. <laughs> what is it, Jack? Uh, $40.9 billion. Wow. Oh. Okay, $40 billion. Yeah. But it's it's a huge <laughs> – okay. <laughs> and, and there's a – you know, there's a guy who manages hedge funds and – He's boring. He gave $300 million to financial aid to make sure that kids can afford to go. He's a good guy, but he's boring. Well, <laughs> you see, I know guys who knew him back in the 19th. Remember the oil trader I told you about? Mm -hmm. Okay. These were kids who were getting into the markets in 1987. And, and you guys wouldn't know, but 25, 20 to 30% of the value of the market was lost in a few hours and they had to they had to turn the market off in 1987 and everybody's wondering like what's going to happen the next day with the market crashed by 30 percent in a couple hours 20 to 30 what happened in 1987 what happened okay it was one of these situations where things developed like 2008 where you know you, you it was know, a long time coming it was a long time coming people didn't see it a few did typically but the, a consensus existed, and when there's a consensus, that allows for market distortions to form, and then everybody wakes up to the weakness at the same time. People panic, and then when they panic, there are great bargains to be had. Jeez, okay. and, and you're saying this guy was one of the guys who predicted? They were students going through it for the first time, and I, I remember at the time I, I, uh, Harry Parker uh, the head coach at the time and myself, we uh, had talked on a regular basis about markets and investing. And I like to follow people who do this sort of thing, uh, anyways. And and uh, it was it was a it was a scary time for everybody because it felt like the beginning of the depression again or something. But in fact, there were some some distortions related to money where. You, people were over leveraged, doing too much, and I forgot what it was uh, that triggered it. But everybody was like, "Whoa, what is going on?" And then slowly, you know, things things were restored. And and uh, um, I, I just it's been a very I've been very lucky because Harvard and Harvard Rowing has been a rich experience because of the people who've decided that they wanted to come to school. And it's not just geniuses who are only focused on some narrow area of... of, of it's people who... So I said, in a, and we'll end on this, but I said it on HBS class, and I know it's not the undergrad, but it was just like a bunch of people who obviously a lot of them were very intelligent, but a lot of them just wanted to excel. And it was like, it's contagious when you just get around a million people like that. It is more than, it, you know, talent is one thing, but the desire to make something happen. That drive. The drive. It's like gliding through the Charles. It's like, well, the three of you guys here, we're in this building. It's a very cool space, what you've got here. Oh, you're but you guys are, now. you no, 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 no. I can't imagine how good the party's going to be. 
You come okay. <laughs> I'm going to be in Florida with the training camp. Uh, Otherwise, uh, I would show up with my wife. You say it at the okay. end. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but it's drive that matters. It's, it's motivation. And I have seen more people who are motivated. And when you're motivated, you will overcome any sort of shortcoming. You will surround yourself with, if you're not the sharpest tool in the shed, but you've got great ideas, then you're going to find the guys who can make things happen on some sort of specialized area. And if you treat them right and you're loyal to them, then everybody will work together and perform. And you lead well. And yeah, you have to be a leader, but that leadership comes from the commitment. And it's the commitment that's made the difference for me, like at Harvard and over the, for more than 30 years. Get it done. The guys love to be committed. And, you know, people are watching a race. And at the end, there are these two boats that have raced a mile and a half, mile and a quarter, side by side, one foot between them. And after the race, I mean, they're heaving over the sides. People are exhausted. You're looking to see if they're okay, you know, if anybody's in trouble. But for the most part, they couldn't be happier, even though they just ripped their guts out. And this is true across all sports. If they've, if they've done their best, then you can't do more. And they won't forget. That's the key for me, is that they, is that they won't forget giving their best. And they don't care if they're throwing up and they're in physical agony because that's gonna pass. But 30 years from now, 20 years from that moment, they're gonna tell some young person when they find that they row or they do sports, you know, they're gonna say in 2007 I had this race and it was neck and neck and you know, and the kid might be bored, but if that kid stays with the sport, they might have that same moment and then bore somebody in 2015. Let's go. Attack the rest of your day. I love it. Absolutely. Okay. So, listen, one, thank you for coming. Oh, you're welcome. This has been fun. I've enjoyed myself. Nice to know. Hi. Hi. I'm Coach Bud. And that was my golden hour. You got it, man. All right. And shout out to Connor. How does he spell it? C-O-N-O-R. Woo!